Assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everybody to day 11 of Surah al-Baqarah. Um, we're having a little bit of technical difficulty, so that's always a positive sign that it's going to be an amazing halakha, inshallah. Um, I wanted to start by um, just saying one of the things that I find so exciting about what we cover here and talk about between the, the khutbahs and the halakhas and everything else is just the connections between everything. You know, Sheikh makes a point of saying everything is connected. And the power of intellectual ideas, and when you see them start coming together and you start getting triggered yourself with like all sorts of different things um, and understandings that you might not have thought about before, I think it's extremely exciting. Like I know when I first became Muslim, you know, so much of my thinking was it started sort of big and then when I met Muslims and went into community spaces I felt like I was sort of pushed more into a box and it's like you were sort of you know you really get this idea that Islam is sort of part of a compartmentalized part of your life and that you know you, it, it lives nicely over here while the rest of your life can take place over here and I think that one of the really um, powerful changes is then seeing when actually things are connected and they do come alive and that part of the challenge of kind of putting things together so I wanted to share a few things that I thought were particularly interesting that kind of just struck me um, over the course of the week. Um, last halakha, you know, I mentioned um, a, a journalist, C.J. Werleman, who is not Muslim but focused on the atrocities of Muslims. Like he has dedicated his platform to that. And I, I felt really strongly that, um, you know, we all need to get behind him. Um, he has a video that he put out recently um, about the Uyghur Muslim situation. and. Um, you know, the Sheikh had talked about, you know, the trafficking of halal organs um, a few khutbahs back. This uh, video um, got into a, another aspect, which I thought was just horrific. Um, and I wanted to share it because it was just so um, devastating. So he's talking about how now, like, the organ harvesting has become an on-demand process. So, you know, as you know, like when, when we go onto our driver's license and we say that we, you know, want to donate our organs if we pass away, um, you know, the way these things typically work is, you know, when, when you die or someone dies in an accident, then, you know, all of a sudden you'll have like a liver or a kidney or a heart or something available. And then the doctor, you know, the, the doctors maintain a waiting list, right? And so then they see, you know, okay, what has become available and who um, on the, our list, our wait list of, um, you know, people who are, who, who need an organ, what's a, a good match, right? What's the best match? Because you have to take into account, you know, like blood type and all kinds of things. So at that moment, then that kind of triggers the process and then, you know, the, the organ and the person is connected. So what the Chinese have done with the Uyghurs is they've reversed engineered this process. So now they know that they have this pool of Uyghurs with all kinds of blood types and all kinds of whatever. They've taken their DNA, they've taken their blood samples, they've taken everything about them. And now you can order on demand. So if you want um, a heart or you want a liver or you want an eye or whatever you want, you basically place your order. Then they go to their database and they figure out which of the Uyghur Muslims they have in stock that best fits what you need. And boom, they schedule the date to kill that person to give you that organ. This is the most unbelievable thing. And, you know, like, so he's, CJ Werleman talks about how, you know, when you look at the Chinese as a population, they are very low in terms of um, voluntary donors, like less than 1% of the Chinese population wants to donate organs. Um, you know, in contrast, Americans, 45% of Americans actually do sign up and offer to be, um, you know, uh, organ donors. So, you know, when China is offering up this vast array on demand, 
obviously it's not coming from their own citizens. You know, it's, it's clear, and, it, and this has been well documented, where these organs are coming from. Um, and so, you know, this is just one of the many things that he has highlighted, and obviously, you know, these are not things that people are talking about um, in mainstream media. But just again, to, as an example, to underscore the importance of supporting, you know, certainly independent journalists, and in, in our case for Muslim causes and Muslim atrocities, I think C.J. Worleman is so important. But um, just and to let you know again, he has a Patreon page, and I think we absolutely need to support him and other media outlets. So you know, I've mentioned here before Democracy Now and The Intercept. Um, you know thinking about like independent journalism and where they go, I found this very interesting article that just um, came out from The Intercept. Um, and this is not related to Muslims, but it's about um, hospitals and how hospitals have become um, sort of this storehouse of, of, of uh, insight and, and knowledge and intelligence as to the devastation that COVID has you know, put on people. Um, and during COVID, most hospitals had barred journalists from entering and taking pictures or making it clear to, to the, the public what was actually going on and how people were suffering and what it looked like. There were very few hospitals that opened up their doors. So instead, you know, you will recall we saw pictures of empty streets or people wearing masks. We didn't see the devastation that was happening um, in the hospitals. And certainly if we had, that probably would have, have had a profound impact on policy decisions and things that, you know, were um, decided at those critical moments. Um, so you see the connection, you know, I mean, so, so journalists um, play such an important role in even, you know, especially for, for Muslims and things that are happening around the world. Um, connected to that, I guess, from, you know, in terms of policy making, um, I wanted to also highlight the khutbah from yesterday, which, as always, is just so insightful um, by, by Sheikh. Um, he highlighted the two of the huge um, Muslim court cases that are coming before the Supreme Court and talked about um, the attitude of, of judges in the Supreme Court and how they are largely deaf to Muslim issues and the whole dynamic. And it's extremely um, important and powerful khutbah that teaches us about that. But the thing that was triggered in me is, you know, so much of what impacts a lot of these decisions that are made are um, culture and prevailing attitudes and, um, you know, even political capital. Um, and so, you know, these cases that are coming before the Supreme Court for Muslims are, are really civil liberties cases. And usually, you know, in America, when you start thinking about civil liberties and civil, civil rights and all of that, your mind kind of goes to, oh, the, you know, the 60s, right? And the civil rights struggles and, you know, the, the African-American population and the whole movement and just, you just, you get a visceral sense of like, there were so many people that came out on the streets and they were, you know, singing songs and they were protesting and, you know, the big figures that were all part of that movement and all of that had such a profound impact on the outcome, um, you know, in the Supreme Court. Um, and so when you then, think about that and then you think about our context today and these two Supreme Court cases going through and you know who's out on the streets who's out singing songs who's out making a stink so that people understand this is another civil rights case and this time it's you know it's Muslims well the only people that I saw were on my Facebook feed it's like a, a picture of Hossam Ailoush and maybe two of his you know colleagues standing with these little signs saying basically you know Muslim rights matter and, and you know it's such a it's such a clear like um, gap, you know, like what a difference. And so you can't help but think, okay, this will have a really dramatic impact on the outcomes of those cases and how the Supreme Court feels. And, and Sheikh in his khutbah talks about that and, um, and that, you know, 
that whole uh, dynamic of how it works in the course. So again, you, you absolutely need to watch that. And at the last part of the chutbah, um, you know, he talked a lot about the idea of the colonization of Muslim minds, specifically by the UAE and what's happening now. And I just wanted to point this out because, you know, so much of like having a civil rights movement and having people, you know, like go out on the streets and sing and dance and, and do everything like that um, arises from a certain, you know, a, a, an awareness of, of like pride, right? To be proud to be Muslim to or, you know, proud to be um, African-American or proud to be human, you know, to, to have dignity over who you are. Um, and hopefully that is something that will push people to rise up um, when it matters. And clearly, you know, we suffer from a lot of um, lack of dignity, lack of pride, um, lack of, of confidence in, in our, you know, who we are as Muslims um, because of, you know, the Islamophobic forces that take place. And interestingly, um, so Sheikh spends a lot of time talking about examples of how the UAE now is, you know, actively working towards the colonization, you know, another form of colonization of, of Muslim minds and how you have to control, like, the way Muslims think, the way they act, their attitudes about things. And, you know, not, um, not the least of which is that idea of, you know, if you're going to talk about something political, that that is, puts you in a category like, ooh, you're bad, you know, you're talking about political Islam or you're a political Muslim. Um, and, and that's such a powerful idea. You know, we talk here, not in we talk about things happening in the world all the time. And it's very easy to minimize that by saying, oh, you know, Khalid al-Fadl is, is talking about political things. And in fact, there was a, a young Greek convert scholar recently who um, wrote her dissertation, which is now going to be published, about how Khalid al-Fadl brought his politics to the pulpit, or brought politics in general to the pulpit, which is, to me, such a you know, reflects such, um, you know, you're sort of missing the big picture. You know, when you are not recognizing that talking about justice and that weaves into every part of life, that that is not about isolating, you know, politics from the rest of, you know, your existence. So it's, it's definitely playing into that model. But Sheikh goes through and explains that a lot of this is because the UAE has recognized that the biggest threat to, you know, their power or, or you know, the power of the UAE and the power of, of that, you know, despotism and oppression and, and just the, the state status quo um, is the idea that the one thing that will animate Muslims to, to be a threat and to possibly threaten their power is um, an Islamically animated people. It's like Muslims are not going to get animated over secularism or communism or socialism, but they could potentially get animated over, um, you know, Islamic ideas of human rights and dignity and democracy. And that's why there is such, you know, an um, concerted effort to fight those issues. And you know, and Sheikh talks in detail about what kinds of things are being done, like the conveyor belt theory. You know, a lot of these are just theories of, um, or, you know, like premises that are being fed about how basically if you take a stand politically that you are on a conveyor belt to becoming a terrorist and that this is kind of what underlies a lot of you know the anti-Muslim animus. Um, so you know of course when you think about well, what is going to um, animate Muslims in terms of hu human rights and dignity and democracy. From where we're sitting here at Asuli it's going to be I think um, 
reconnecting to the Quran and understanding what the Quran calls for, not in the way that mainstream understands it, but really what we're teaching. And so, you know, I mean, people know here that I'm sort of the in-house cheerleader about everything that we do and how excited I am about Usuli, but I genuinely believe, and I think people who have been following me know that through these halakas, it's like we have seen and connected with the Quran in a very different way. Um, it's a genuine way. It's something that, you know, sparks a lot of, of an, you know, of, of animation and, um, and inspiration and hope. Um, and conviction about how beautiful this message is and how much of a right it is for people to have their dignity um, and, you know, and power from, from the beauty of this message. So, um, you know, it's interesting. So then when you like kind of put all of these things together and see how they're all connected, you know, truly what is sort of the greatest threat is this reconnection with the Quran and is being able to be confident and being proud to be Muslim and all of that. So. You know, it's not a small thing, and um, even though you know we are a small group, and we you know people are finding us um, you know as they do, um, it just underscores the importance of this message, and you know, and and the potential for for what can change. You know, Muslims get very um, down about the state of the world and what's happening to Muslims all over. It's like, how is it going to change? You know, what can we do to make a difference? Well, it starts with education, and it starts with that that animation and that excitement and that confidence um, and pride that can come from, again, just starting with the Quran and understanding the power of, of this beautiful message. So for that, I'm so grateful and I'm so excited, um, again, to continue with our journey on um, Surah Baqarah um, and all the other surahs to come, inshallah. So thank you for being with us and um, so excited, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحمل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب اللهم لا تكلفنا إلا أوسعنا ولا اللهم لا تؤخذنا النسينا وخطأنا ولا تحمل علينا إسرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به يا رب العالمين إنك أنت الغفور الرحيم We stopped at um, 239 and uh, before Moving on, I just want to underscore um, an interpretive point because perhaps of both the, the subtlety of the point and also the fact that it is not made, it is not, it is uh, a, a point that I, I have not seen. Uh, and this goes back to the Quranic pronouncement, وَلِلْرِجَالِ عَلَيْهُنَّ دَرَجَةً That men have a degree over them. And 
we all understand that language by definition is contextual when you use language you are using an instrument it's an instrument it's an instrument a system of signs and that signify meanings and it as an instrumentality it deals with the consciousness of human beings and consciousness is always contextual we are thoroughly a product of our consciousness of our context okay so when we say they have a degree a degree and I said that it could mean a priori it could mean that as a um, um, it could mean as as a sort of as a first principle it, it could mean a variety of things but there is a there is a critical point and that has to do with the interpreter of the Quran imagine that there are a lot of people who go work in Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or the Emirates or Bahrain and so on and these expats that go and work there everyone knows that in these countries uh, the employer you businesses are owned by nationals of these countries so you know if you're not a Saudi national you, you can't own a Saudi business you can you can do business in Saudi Arabia but any corporation any business any law firm any store and has to have uh, a majority owned share by a Saudi and the same applies, same rule applies in Kuwait, it applies in the Emirates and so on. So, and so what this means is that most people that go there, um, they are in a power relationship in which they have usually a native in these countries who's their boss who owns the majority or owns the business or who is the boss so imagine that there's let's say an Egyptian fellow who's going to go work for a Kuwaiti and they're going to go to Kuwait and then they have a disagreement about whether one of them is superior to the other so let's say the Egyptian says, well, I'm going to go work to you, for you, but I'm just working for you. That doesn't mean that you are superior. It just means that I am working for you. I'm just doing a job. I'm getting paid for the job. And let's say the Kuwaiti says, no, when you come to my country and you work in my country, I'm superior to you because it, it, all ownership belongs to Kuwaiti nationals and so on. And let's say they come to me 
and they say, well, you resolve this conflict between us. Is one of us superior to the other? And my response is, well, the Kuwaiti has a degree over the Egyptian. Daraja. Have I confirmed the superiority of the Kuwaiti over the Egyptian? Well, it depends on the mind frame of the interpreter. If you are a patriarch or if you are a, ma a, a, a misogynist, you will take this Quranic pronouncement of men have a degree over. And you will say, well, what this is saying is that this degree, although it's, when you say a degree, is it, it is not an, necessarily an affirmation of superiority. You could, but nevertheless, a misogynist could say, well, this degree is due to inherent qualities. So the male mind is naturally superior to the female mind. The only problem you have then is that it only says a degree. So it is like, as if saying, it is a little bit superior. If you're not a misogynist, you'll take what I said and you'll say, well, it's saying, it's expressing a power dynamic that males are, have, are leveraged with more power vis-a-vis women because if you wanted to say someone is superior to the other, you wouldn't, you, say, well, you wouldn't say they have a degree over them. So let's go back to my example, the Egyptian and the Kuwaiti. So I tell the, these guys, well, the, the Kuwaiti has a degree over you. If the interpreter is a racist, they'll understand what I said as I'm saying that someone is inherently superior to the other. If they're not a racist, what they'll understand is, well, I'm just recognizing the reality of the power dynamic between the two. That if the Kuwaiti wants to terminate the employment of the Egyptian fellow, well, legal authority rests with the Kuwaiti. Do you see? So, in the long tradition of misogyny, in the long tradition of misogyny, and there is a long tradition of misogyny, not just in the Islamic tradition, but in all traditions, that expression Although later on the Quran confirms that it is a matter of degree according to how power is leveraged under the circumstances and context, yet misogyny clinged on to that expression and said, well, it, it's a degree, it's an, a very inadequate expression of supremacy because that's not the way you express supremacy. Nevertheless, misogyny said it's because of the inherent, the, the brain of a man 
is inherently superior to the brain of a woman. But if you as a moral matter forego misogynistic interpretations, then you become morally committed to an interpretation that is not immoral. And hence, you would understand that expression as a recognition of the power dynamics that exist at the time between the two. That the power of the purse, as the Quran even affirms later on, that the power of the purse rests with men. They control the finances. They control the flow of money. And this goes back to my earlier point that if the power relations are renegotiated, that you recognize that that expression is, is not a normative expression. It's not telling you men should be the controllers of the purse. Because if it wanted to say that, there are far more clear and precise and plain ways to say that. And this is important because you, you, know, you can't... It, it is... Other religious texts, if you see the way other texts talk about men and women. For instance, when the Bible describes the relationship of a wife to her husband as, as similar to the relationship of a slave to a master. It is only because we are a defeated and colonized people you think, I'm, you know, I'm, I've dealt with, I've read enough feminist, Muslim feminist literature to recognize that a lot of these people think they're being deep and critical thinkers when they talk about this expression with all the vehemence. If you want to ha have a vehement opposition to misogyny, I'm fine. You know, th that's fair. That's a fair historical, uh, that's a fair assessment of a historical dynamic that is undeniable, in my opinion. However, that Quranic expression is not a misogynistic expression. The misogyny is rests with the interpreter or interpreter of that text, who takes this to mean that to say you have a degree, daraja, as a description of the nature of the mind or the nature of an inherent quality. Um, of course, I mean, in the Tafasir, so a lot of what is written about, you know, the extrapolations upon this daraja, this, this, this degree over them, 
a lot of the extrapolations are quite uh, embarrassing because they, you know, they'll start talking about how women are inherently deficient, uh, how women are, you know, constitute the majority of those in hellfire, how women are inherently untrustworthy and uh, traitors, and etc., etc., etc. But if you are anchored in comparative traditions, i.e. comparative texts, you know that there is absolutely nothing remarkable about these texts that are being written in the 12th century AD or 14th century AD. Because if you've read comparatively, you know that you've read much worse in other traditions. You can't take anything out of its historical, because we are historical people, meaning that you and I are a product of our historical moment. And it is disingenuous to try to pretend that you are beyond your historical moment, or that somehow that you, are, you, you come from an abstract intelligence that is not embedded in anything. Okay. So if you look at 240, that those of you who die, then it is incumbent to leave a will and pair that will providing for a minimum of a year of maintenance for the widow how as long as the widow remains living in the marital home but if the widow decides to leave the marital home after her waiting period in other words to either go back to her family or to remarry after the waiting period, then the maintenance is discontinued. And normally, you read that this ayah is abrogated by later ayahs that um, dictate an inheritance, um, an inheritance share for for wives with deceased husbands. But it is not the point, it is not abrogated. And, and let me explain why. What the, as we said, there is a problem and there is a response. And the problem that existed at the time was that for many women when and this is before the the the, the inheritance laws in in Arab practice at the time when a husband dies the wife is entitled to none of the property she gets nothing of the husband's share which is something addressed by the Quran later And normally, upon the death of the husband, 
the family of the husband, and remember that these are networks, so you're married into a network, you're not married into an individual. So the husband's network, the family of the husband, comes to the widow and says, well, go back home, meaning go back to your family, clear out because we need the space. And the, the dynamics in Medina were that, you know, homes were not, it's not like our day and age where, you know, you get married and uh, you go to a developer, a developer who built a home and then you buy the home and uh, constructing a home was quite a big deal because of the scarcity of raw materials in Medina. The, the material you build homes from were expensive. And so homes would be built and inhabited by families for a long time. And the same house would witness many births and deaths and many marriages that come and go. And so there was a pressure for the network of the husband, meaning the family of the husband, to come to the uh, widow and say, well, okay, you know, now we want to use the space. This is eventually changed by Islam. But it starts out under the circumstances, the first legislation is that the policy of quick eviction is rejected. So first, the waiting period. You can't evict during the waiting period. Then plus the requirement that there would be a wasiya, a will, that provides for maintenance at a minimum a year beyond the waiting period. Why does it say leave a will instead of just decreeing a flat law? Why does it say leave a will providing for that maintenance instead of saying, well, they're entitled to a year's maintenance? Because of the moral agency, the point was not a year's maintenance. The point is the moral lesson that is being communicated. You can't die and not worry about the dignity of your widow. You can't simply say, well, I'll let it, I'll let things work out after me. Uh, I'll let my family take care of it. And the first lesson in moral agency and responsibility, so the, the waiting period is set and there is no, there is no, you know, it, it is God's, if you will, God's agency. Four months, we, you can't, she can't be uh, 
moved out of of the of the husband's home, which was the husband's home at that time. But then it it comes and says when it when it the phrasing of two forty. It's like saying, if you want God's pleasure, if you are good Muslims, if you are decent human beings, you would further concern yourself. And Quranic interpreters, for some reason, read this to say, well, the wasiyah is just for one year and nothing beyond one year. That's not what it says. Grammatically, what it says is a minimum of one year. And in fact, the reported traditions and the early practice before the birth of the Madahib is that the, it was understood by the early community that you, that you would, that actually people were leaving Walsiyas after Revelation of 240 saying, and my wife cannot be kicked out of this home as long as, in other words, she gets to stay in this home as long as she needs to. So as long as she doesn't go back to her parents and as long as she doesn't remarry. And it was clear that the earliest Muslims understood that this what was, was pleasing to the Prophet Muhammad and that was what was pleasing to God, is that you go beyond the year. And, of course, while maintaining the necessary flexibility because the practice, the tradition for the vast majority of women is that if their dead husbands, if their husbands die, they must remarry. I mean, the idea of a, of a woman uh, being just living as a widow was just... Um, very, very unusual. It's not that it wasn't done. It was done especially after the time of the Prophet, in, you know, a couple of centuries later. And usually these these women, you know, were either very wealthy or they they were mystics or, you know, there was something about them. The, the, but the vast majority, their family would actively make sure that they remarried shortly after the death of their husbands. But the principle became is that, well, just it, it, the honorable thing to do is to get, is to keep them or to, to allow them to stay as long as they want. And of course, so to say that ayah is abrogated, I think is erroneous. What we say is the ayah was modified later on by an inheritance share. However, the moral lesson of the ayah remains. You have to worry about the dignity and well-being of those you leave behind. And you can't simply throw the responsibility on the technical shares decreed by the Quran. You have to 
concern yourself, and this is especially in families that have complicated situations. So, to the extent that you can actively intervene to prevent what happens in real life, and that is family often clinging to the letter of the law to do things to family members that are not nice. Like saying, well, this is now my home, I've inherited it, get out. 240 teaches us a moral lesson. It's a moral education. And this is, of course, you know, and notice, وَلِلْمُطَلَّقَاتِ مَتَاعٌ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ حَقًّا عَلَى الْمُتَّقِينَ And for those who are divorced, they have a right to maintenance. حَقًّا عَلَى الْمُتَّقِينَ A duty upon the pious. The language is language of morality. حَقًّا عَلَى الْمُتَّقِينَ So it's like saying, if you don't provide for maintenance for a divorced woman, the, the meaning is clear. Then you are not a person of haq and you are not a person of taqwa. Again, the role of the interpreter is very important because did men interpreters give 241, for instance, its due no, they didn't. They, they didn't talk about the maintenance of a divorced woman as a matter of ethics and morality. But this is why the text of the Quran is a, is a living text forever. Just because human consciousness did not negotiate the text appropriately in a certain periods of time, doesn't mean that it forever should remain so. When Allah tells us that لِلْمُطَلَّقَاتِ مَتَاعٌ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ حَقًّا عَلَى الْمُتَّقِينَ For a divorced woman is a right to maintenance, meaning a right to be taken care of. And it is a moral obligation. Again, the examples I gave you last time in handling divorce cases. So, you know, you cite a verse like this and modern Muslims stare at you blankly. Okay, well, tell us what does Islamic law do? What does Islamic law say? And you tell them, well, no, but listen to the moral language of the Quran that you, you can't simply say, I will divorce and tell me what my strict legal obligations are and don't talk to me about ethical obligations. That's the huge flaw. That's the huge problem. Because you could comply what, with what Imam Shafi says vis-a-vis -vis a divorcee, but still be in an unethical situation still be in an impious situation. The law doesn't guarantee that you fulfill the demand, the ethical demand. 243, there is a, um, 
a big. I'll, I'll try to summarize it, but it, it, there's a, a sort of an interesting interpretive debate about 243. What is this ayah talking about? So it is, first let's take the sort of the, the literal language. And it, it is talking about people who left their homes in the, in large numbers, uluf means in, in masses, not necessarily thousands, but in masses. And that these people did so because of a fearful situation and that they experienced a death and a rebirth. Okay? Now, there are traditions that say that this area is talking about an ancient people, there is a lot of debate about who exactly, that their town was plagued by, um, um, the, their, their town was hit by a plague, Taun, and that as a result, they fled and this, by the way, this, this, this narrative comes from the Talmud. It's literally transplanted from the Talmud, one of the Talmudic narratives. That then they, they fled the plague and as a demonstration of Allah's power, uh, they were, they died for eight days and then they were brought back to life. And so it's sort of like you're running away from death. Well, here, Allah will make you experience death and then the miracle of coming back to life. Um, all the, the, some said, no, the, 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 there's another version of this that it wasn't that they were running from a plague, but rather they were running from persecution, that this was a, um, um, a persecuted Jewish group and that they ran away from their persecutors and that they the reason they ran away is that they didn't want to stand up to the against to the persecutors uh, and Allah caused them all to die and then after nine days or something like that I think it was nine or ten days that they come back to life the problem with these riwayat is that they're all what the the Israeliya, they're all Israelite traditions, meaning traditions that were brought to Islam through Jewish converts to Islam that said, well, this ayah is talking about this Talmudic story and related that 
normally, eventually, these traditions become attributed to the Prophet, but invariably they all have a chain of transmission problems. Others, interpreters, said who the interpreters that rejected the Israelite, the Israelite traditions, said that you cannot. The, the, this area is 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 interconnected with the discourse that follows it. That after now, Surah Al-Baqarah was responding to a, a number of, if you will, domestic uh, problems that came up in Medina. Then it goes back to address the persistent problem of uh, a society at war and the sacrifices that are made by a society at war. And that the point of 243 is actually far more subtle. The people that it's talking about it's talking about Muslims themselves, not an Israelite uh, group or a Jewish group before Islam, but Muslims themselves. And it's saying that those, the, those people, it, you who escaped oppression you were by being oppressed you were as if dead and what brought you back to life is resisting oppression and standing up to oppression And that is why right after it it says, وَقَاتِلُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَعَلَمُوا أَنَّ اللَّهِ سَمِيرٌ عَلِيمٌ 2.44 So fight. So fight in Allah's cause. So it's, it's like saying, I know that the fact that in migration, you, you people come to Medina and suddenly Medina it, you know, the people of Medina find themselves in a situation of warfare and being under siege. And this is, you know, is a consistent social issue that confronts Medinian society and entailed, you know, numerous debates. But here the Quran comes and saying, understand that by standing up to oppression, those of you who think that it is possible to respond to the hostility that you are confronting by avoiding fighting, understand that you are, you are alive because you are resisting oppression. 
later on Muhammad Abdul comments about um, 243 and he supports the he rejects all the Israelite um, traditions and he supports this interpretation and he says that if Muslims understood 243 they would be truly a free people because they would understand that acceding to oppression being subservient to oppression is death you're dead but you don't realize it and life is resisting oppression that's true life that's obviously in tafsir muhammad abdu okay and then this is further built upon in 245 that if you uh, speaking about uh, sacrifices you make for in Allah's cause as if it is you are uh, as if you are loaning God um, and and not just loaning God, but it is a moral and ethical loan. And obviously here, it, it is especially referring to financial support of Islamic causes. That it is, you receive your due, nothing escapes God's, um, uh, um, that this doesn't escape your God, that your, your, you will receive your due um, multiplied many folds. Okay. Yeah, um, about uh, 245, th this, um, it is in this context that you'll often find most of the tafsir will quote, not all, but um, the famous hadith that Allah in the final day will say, uh, and it's of course it's a, it's a, um, um, a parable, or you know that uh, that Allah says, "I was ill and you didn't visit me. Um, I was hungry and you didn't feed me." Um, I forgot the, um, the maybe. Let's see if I can give you one. Ibn uh, Rajiba doesn't put it, but I don't see it. Anyway, I mean, the, the, um, I, I've talked about this hadith in one of my khutbahs that, you know, I, that um, I was ill and you didn't visit me, I was hungry and you didn't feed me, and then, of course, the question is how God, you know, how could you have, uh, how could we have done that? And, and then the answer is that uh, someone that you knew a Muslim was ill and you didn't visit the Muslim so it's 
or a Muslim was hungry and you didn't feed Muslim, that Muslim, or a Muslim was in need and you didn't help that Muslim, and that this is a direct offense against God. That it is, so when you fail a fellow Muslim, you are actually failing God directly. And that covers, you know, feeding the hungry, taking care of the needy, and visiting and taking care of the ill. And the hadith is more, uh, it's longer than that, and it's more detailed. So it has several other categories. But again, the, the point is not the categories, but the moral lesson, that you cannot be oblivious to the needs of your fellow Muslim. And simply, in fact, you are directly dealing with the demands of the divine. So, failing a fellow Muslim, you've directly failed God. Um, I mean, it is amazing, because of course with these teachings, it, it, it just, it's mind-boggling how Muslims have ended up in, in, the, in the place they've ended up. I mean, I mean, so many Muslims around the world absolutely know what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims in China. And so God, I mean, by this measure, God would say, you know, I was living and you killed me because, you know, or, you know, you st God would say, you stole my liver and you stole my eyes and you stole my heart and be, because you know you needed the heart you needed the kidney you needed the liver and you ignored the fact that your fellow muslim was being murdered and 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 harvested um i, I mean and it's so serious that it is absolutely in my opinion beyond in my opinion, beyond the shadow of doubt, haram, that um, you need an organ, even if you needed it for an eye operation because you're going blind or because you're going to die because uh, you need a heart or you need a kidney and so on, and to simply buy an organ off the black market uh, coming from China. Because any reasonable, it's entirely, a reasonable person would foresee that this organ, it used to be a few years ago that the organs be coming from China were most likely coming from um, this group that the Chinese completely obliterated. Fulham Gong. Uh, Fulham Gong. Um, now it's Muslims. Now, Full and Gong are not being harvested anymore because they're, they're all the ones that, um, they're gone. I mean, the Full and Gong, the ones who survive are all outside of China now. Um, but it is Muslims. So, you know, to me, it, it is, be, it boggles my mind that there, um, that there's this halal, so-called halal organs. Halal, what halal organs?
I mean, you're, you're, you know you're buying a liver that if it's coming from China, you know that a Muslim got killed. So you can have that liver. There's no excuse. You know, I don't care if, if it's, if it means you stay blind or you die or it, it just, it's immaterial. Uh, you can't sacrifice another human being, uh, whether Muslim or not Muslim, by the way. You can't sacrifice another human being. And, and this is unanimously held in Sharia. You can't sacrifice a human, another human being so you can live. And uh, by now, the, the evidence is overwhelming that you can't pretend, you can't find ignorance. And, you know, you, you say, well, are the people, are people actually doing this? Absolutely. You have no clue. I mean, if you take my human trafficking class, you'd learn horrible, horrible details about how the, the, how much money the, this industry is worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. And unfortunately, there are a lot of unethical doctors who get paid extremely handsomely to do these operations. Um, and, um, you know, you can fill in the blanks. It, it's, uh, it's very difficult to... To, to get control over this industry. It's very difficult because most people, most patients are flown out of the U.S. to a third country. They're, they're well-known areas in Mexico, in Brazil, um, where the organ is flown from directly from China um, and the operation takes place there and, you know, the, everything is is costed out so you know uh, who's going to get paid what uh, precisely and everything is paid in advance and it, it, it's an extremely huge industry um yeah it's just really um incredible and of course you notice that 236 The, this is the firm, famous narrative, um, is it 236? No, sorry, 246. Two, two um, that, this is Muhammad Assad's translation, are they not aware of those elders of the children of Israel after the time of Moses, who, how they said unto a prophet of theirs, Uh, raise up a king for us and we shall fight in God's cause. And he, this is the, in, in, in all likelihood, this is um, referring to Samuel, Sumail, uh, salam. And um, the prophet then said, would you perchance refrain from fighting if fighting is ordained for you? And they answered, why should we not fight in God's cause when we and our children have been driven from our homelands? Yet, when fighting was ordained for them and they did turn back, when fighting was ordained for them, they turned back, save for a few of them, but God had full knowledge of the evildoers. 
So this is the, the story of Sumail or Samuel alayhi salam. The reason I'm flagging this though right now is that it goes back to the interpretation to 243. Fighting oppression and fighting oppression being equated to life and being subservient to oppression it being equated to death and so those who said that 243 the reason it it that Allah is reminding Muslims of the story of Samuel is to underscore the point communicated in 243 so the, um This, as I said, uh, we are at 2.46. It's a reference in the Quran to the Prophet Samuel or Samuel. And a, a narrative in the Bible, in the... Um, the, one of the chapters of the Bible is Samuel, there's Samuel 1, Samuel 2. And that the Israelites tell the prophet Samuel that they, in order to fight against their oppressors, against those who uh, have evicted them from their homes and persecuted them that they want a king which um, a king was was I mean, historically that makes a lot of sense that people believed that a king was um, semi-divine that a king held that it battles were often uh, uh, lost upon the death of a king or the withdrawal of a king a king was a, a, a center point for identity and and power and all of that so the Israelites say that we will fight our oppressors but we want a king and that um, Allah or God then appoints uh, in Arabic it's Talut in, in English is Saul uh, the king Saul over them or Talut over them and there are there's a defiance if you notice in 247 that they say well how could he this man be appointed a king over us when he is not the wealthiest he is uh, of, of modest background um, and Samuel responds that this is uh, this is God's will that to accept this man as king over you and to fight under his banner. And we get 
to 248. Um, well, well, okay, let's, yeah, let's deal with 248 now. So 248, this is a reference to, let's see how. So the prophet Samuel t tells them, behold, it shall be a sign of this king's dominion that you will be granted a tabut. Tabut normally translated as a tomb. And endowed by your sustainer with inner peace and with all that is enduring in the, uh, the angelic heritage left behind by the house of Moses and the house of Aaron. Herein, behold, there shall indeed be a sign for you if you are truly believers. Now, the, there is a mythology in the biblical tradition about the tomb, which is supposed to have inspired a considerable amount of peace and power and, and serenity and security, and eventually this tomb is destroyed um, when the um, um, second temple is destroyed, which, you know, and there are a lot of mythology about the, the powers of that tomb. Muhammad Asad translates the tomb as a tabut as, and here's the Muhammad Asad translation, unedited by me. And their prophet, i.e. Samuel, said unto them, Behold, it shall be a sign of his rightful do dominion, meaning Saul, the king, that you will be granted a heart. And Muhammad Asad goes back into the the, the uh, origins of the word tabut. And one of the old words for hearts in Arabic is tabata, or tabat, a tabat. I don't know if I agree with Muhammad Asad's translation, because Muhammad Asad understands this entire uh, narrative symbolically that there wasn't an actual tomb carried to battle which would become the sort of a sign for them or a, a source of inspiration and security and power um, and bravery in battle but rather that Muhammad Asad says that what God is talking about is that God says that I will touch your hearts I will alter your hearts and put in your heart serenity and security and safety. Um, the reason I'm, I'm skeptical, of, although linguistically it makes sense, but the reason I'm skeptical of Muhammad Asa's translation is that historically it would have made sense for, at that time, for uh, people to carry to battle a symbol, something that would inspire uh, confidence and uh, strength, and uh, which later on, by the way, is the origins for the idea of going to, to battle with a banner and a flag. And if the flag falls, then you've lost the battle. And people would sacrifice their lives to just keep the, the banner up. Um, this is a very old human tradition that you have a symbol 
and to carry into battle a wooden box that is a symbol of, and, and a wooden box that has inscriptions that is meaningful to the people going to battle is not a historically remarkable thing, meaning it, it makes perfect sense historically. That would have happened. Um, I understand why Muhammad Assad is, you know, is skeptical of this because of in the biblical tradition, that tomb is given magical powers. It 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 becomes like an idol, if you will. It it has these powers to 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 trend, to uh, uh, make you Superman, basically superhuman. Um, anyway. The other thing that I, I want to just flag about this is that the Quran refers to the story of Samuel and the confrontation between David and Goliath, which we'll talk about in a second. The Quranic treatment, a lot of Muslims are just not aware of how different it is from the biblical treatment. So, just to give you a a taste. So, Samuel in in the in the Bible, although you have that same demand about we want a king which, as I said in Arabic, is Talut, and in English, it's, it's, it's Saul. Um, Samuel, in fact, according to the Bible, leads the Israelites in a number of battles before the appointment of Saul as a king. And it's interesting because while the Quran says that the Israelites are, they initially don't like the appointment of Saul because Saul is of humble, back, uh, humble background. And Samuel tells them, you know, that's not appropriate. This is the, this is the, the person chosen by God and the, the fact that he's not, you know, the richest or the most honorable or whatever by, by lineage doesn't matter. In the Bible, um, Samuel picks Saul and God is the one that objects to Saul. Um, and again, these differences are are significant because it it you know for it, they're both talking about the same tradition, but they're talking about it from very different um, vantage points. So um, and anyway, so so god doesn't like the, the the picking of of saul um yet ultimately god sort of accedes or accepts and according to the bible so 
God says, he he's talking now to Samuel, he's talking to Saul, and he says, so the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now, go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put them, put to death the men and women and children and infants. Put to death, so put to death the men, the women, children and infants and put to death the cattle, sheep, camels and donkeys. This is a consistent thing. The Quranic treatment does not repeat a lot of the inhumanity that you find in the biblical narrative. So in the biblical narrative, God's instructions are clear. You are to obliterate everything. The men, women, children, infants, even the cattle, the sheep, the camels, the donkeys. So Saul summons the men and informs them that of, of God's um, instructions and says to them, you are not going to, you are not to take, you are not to, to preserve the life of anything and you are not to take any of it as spoils. So you're not to take the cattle or sheep or donkeys as spoils or to kill everything. And in fact, then Saul leads the Israelites in battle against the Amalekites and that's exactly what they do. Um, but Saul doesn't obliterate everything as he was supposed to do thoroughly. So then Samuel said, this is again Samuel, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came, this is after the battle, and Agag is the king of the Amalekites who is defeated. So bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and, and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. So Agag is thinking that, okay, now I'm safe because they didn't kill me already. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women, ch uh, women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah. But Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. But the Lord regretting, regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. So in the biblical narrative, first God objects to Talut, Saul, and then God tells him, okay, you are to eradicate the Amalekites completely. Saul does that for the most part, but he hesitates about killing Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and he hesitates about killing some of the cattle, some of the livestock. And then Samuel 
executes Agag and kills whatever Saul failed to kill. And according to the Bible, because Saul didn't thoroughly obliterate everything, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king. Now, all of that has no trace in the Quranic narrative. Again, because of the mechanics of Islamophobia, I mean, knowledge, as I keep saying, knowledge is an amazing thing. But also, knowledge torments you. Because if you know enough, and you hear Islamophobes, and you see the way Muslims react to Islamophobes, it kills you. Because you tell yourself, Muslims, you are so ignorant. Only if you knew enough, you wouldn't be phased. Because the same people who are talking to you, who are Jewish or Christian, who are talking to you about your tradition and, you know, pointing the finger at your tradition, they're concealing an enormous amount of crap about their own tradition. And in fact, the biblical narrative doesn't even stop there, but Samuel David emerges as sort of a hero uh, in, in the biblical tradition. And David is the one who is going to ultimately uh, kill um, um, Goliath. The way the Bible describes the relationship between Samuel and David is unbecoming of prophets. Samuel conspires to murder David. And it doesn't work. Samuel is so jealous of David, according to the Bible, that he tries to kill him. And the story just goes on and on. Um, um, so, you know, Samuel 19, Saul try. you know, you have this dynamic where there's jealousies. Uh, also, Saul himself becomes jealous of David and also tries to kill David himself. It just, um, what is remarkable from a, a textual point of view is how succinctly the Quran avoids all of that. And gives you from the it's as if the you know the perspective of someone who is there and picks up the story without all the mythological extrapolations upon the story. So you look at again the narrative in the in the Quran. وَقَالَ لَهُمْ نَبِيُّهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ بَعْثَ لَكُمْ طَالُوتَ مَلِكًا قالوا أن يكون له الملك علينا ونحن أحق بالملك منه ولم يؤتى سعة من المال. So very simple. God, it is God's will that it is Saul is the king, and they say, well, he's not rich enough. How could he be king? And قال إن الله اصطفاه عليكم وزاده بسطة في العلم والجسم. So no, but he God picked him because he is more knowledgeable. So it's not about how rich you are. It is about how knowledgeable you are and how strong you are. 
again, an ethical undercurrent to the narrative that is very different than the biblical narrative. So, anyway, um, then when it comes to the whole uh, issue of battle, you don't find any of the stuff about, um, you know, it is all a vindication or a whole, a, 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 an oppressed people responding to their oppression. That's the Quranic narrative. The biblical narrative is a people who are go and they obliterate the Philistines, they obliterate the Amalekites, they obliterate this people and that people, completely eradicate them. Then, 249. جاوزه هو والذين آمنوا معه قالوا لا طاقة لنا اليوم بجالوت وجنوده قال الذين ظنون أنهم ملاق الله كم من فئة قليلة غلبت فئة كثيرة بإذن الله والله مع الصابرين So this is 249 ولما برزوا لجالوت وجنوده قالوا ربنا فرغ علينا صبرا وثبت أقدامنا وانصرنا على قوم الكافرين This is 250 فهذموهم بإذن الله وقتل داود جالوت وآتاه الله الملك والحكمة وعلمهم مما يشاء ولولا دفع الله الناس بعضهم ببعض لفسدت الأرض ولكن الله ذو فضل على العالمين This is 251 the narrative in the Quran, and I let me just take a minute and, and, and emphasize all the ways that it is quite different, because it has very different moral purposes. First, the Quran tells you about an incident that's not in the Bible, and that is they're going to battle under the leadership of Saul. Saul, in the Quran, is a pious human being. He, he talks about what he talks about God in a reverential manner, very different than the Bible. But so they come to a river, and. Saul tells the army that you can't drink from this river except what you, you cup your hands and you can drink. And that most of them, because they were marching in the desert and thirsty, found it very hard to obey that command and failed in obeying it. What is the point of this interjection by the Quran? The point 
is that serving a cause without discipline is pointless. If you are going to serve a cause with a self-indulgent attitude, you might not need, you might not understand all this, why, why you have to make all the sacrifices that you need to make. But nevertheless, a lot of times the point is not, the point, discipline is the point. That you be disciplined. Otherwise, the idea of serving a cause is pointless. So, discipline is to disregard what your impulses and your material needs tell you you must have. And here, even or even if it's completely rational, that you are marching in the desert, here is a river, why can't we indulge? Well, that's the command of the leadership. That's what God tells them. This is what Sal tells them God said. Okay. And so the message that Muslims in Medina, including the Ansar and the Muhajirin, get is very clear that <laughs> intense sacrifices are, are a must. And then when they see Goliath and notice the Bible talks about Goliath as a giant and a lot of mythology completely absent in the Quran itself. Although unfortunately the Hadith literature you know, brings in a lot of the biblical uh, mythology again not reliable and so but the Quranic narrative is remarkably what do I say clean right it doesn't have any of the exaggerations and absurdities so they see Goliath's army so what they say is لا طاقة لنا اليوم بجالوتة وجنوده we, we, oh my God, we can't fight this army. They don't say we can't fight the giant, Goliath. They say Goliath and his army are, are scary. How are we going to fight this? And the pious among them then responded by saying what became a very famous uh, statement in the Islamic tradition. كم من فئة قليلة غلبت فئة كثيرة بإذن الله. How often, so many times, the weak defeated the strong by God's will. Of course, the message to these early Muslims were not lost. You are, compared to your enemies, you are extremely at a disadvantage in every other in every way but there is a see an instructional purpose behind the Quranic narrative that 
often in the biblical narrative, you, you, as if you're reading the Bible's version of history without a clear moral point other than that the Israelites are entitled, that God cares about the Israelites and cares about no one else. God doesn't care about the Philistines. God doesn't care about the Amalekites. God doesn't care about any the Egyptians. God only cares about the Israelites. And that makes sense because most of the Old Testament was written after the, in the diaspora, after the destruction of the Second Temple, when those who are writing the, 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 the Torah clearly carried that chip on their shoulders. They, they, they were, you know, they were expressing what their special relationship with God after suffering um, enormously. Okay. And then, so, upon appearing to go before Goliath and his army, this is among the most famous du'as that أفرغ علينا صبرا endow us with perseverance وثبت أقدامنا and ثبت أقدامنا literally is you know firmly plant our 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 feet but idiomatically it means the, you know, give us the strength and firmness to make a stand. And give us victory. A, a dua that permeated Islamic culture. Okay. And then, فَهَذَمُوهُمْ بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ Victory was to Saul's army, the Israelites defeated their enemy, Goliath and his army. وَقَتَلَ دَاوُودُ جَالُوتِ And David, in this battle, killed Goliath. In the biblical narrative, there is really no battle. It is David kills Goliath, and that's it. And he kills him with the famous story of uh, throwing this, um, what do you call it? Um, sling. Sling. A, a sling uh, on a, it was a stone in a sling, and, you know, and hits uh, Goliath a thorn. And then, Notice, And Allah brought then David, mulk, power, and hikmah, and wisdom, and knowledge. So, but then, Notice, 
This is 251. Let's see how Muhammad Asad translates it. So, this is Muhammad Asad, he says. So, and thereupon, by God's leave, they routed them. Uh, and David slew Goliath, and God bestowed upon him dominion, wisdom, and imparted to him the knowledge of whatever God willed. Okay. And if God had not enabled people to defend themselves against one another, corruption would surely overwhelm the earth. Ah, okay. Muhammad Asad's translation gets it in ways that the majority of tafsir don't get it. The majority of tafsir interpret this as saying, that if it hadn't been for the fact that Allah uses people to push one against the other, earth would have been corrupted, meaning corruption would have spread everywhere. And the way that it is understood is that Allah uses sort of, sort of a balance of powers type of argument. That Allah uses people against people to create a balance of powers so that no one can dominate and corrupt. But, in my opinion, this is not what it's saying. What, what it's saying is that Allah gives people, if it hadn't been for the fact that Allah gives people the permission and the strength to fight against aggression and oppression. The earth would have been corrupted. So Muhammad Asad gets it, but he, it, this is very close to what Muhammad Asad says, which I think he was right on, but he says that Allah makes people defend against one another. The point is, the entire narrative that started right after, notice, this started from 2.43. And as I said, what was the theme in 2.43? That if you don't fight against oppression, you're dead. If you fight against oppression, you're alive. From 2.43 culminating into 2.51 is the entire message. Allah is telling you, like the, the people in Medina wanted an, an, an ideological explanation as to why we should keep resisting. And Allah is educating them and telling them, listen, Injustice and oppression and aggression occurs on this earth. 
Allah is not going to send angels to fight for you. You have to do it. And Allah supports those who do it. But this is life. This is, this is how actually life is because how morality, how ethics are protected. Which is consistent with the entire theme, which inshallah when we wrap up Surah Al-Baqarah, about the very idea of Surah Al-Baqarah. That morality and ethics need to be serviced need to be aggressively upheld and defended. Otherwise, the entire, the entire, uh, 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 the very logic of you being Muslims and your mission and purpose as Muslims ceases to make any sense. Then you, you're just like, you know, like any racial ethnic uh, identity, you're just going around, you know, consuming and dying. Like, just like animals, you know, like anything else that God creates. Just lives, consumes, and dies. But that's not what being Muslim is about. You don't fulfill your purpose as a Muslim. Okay. And so, this is a, this is a, a critical point that again, in the Muhammad Abdul said, as I, as I noted, that if people understood um, Ayah 243, that Muslims would have never accepted oppression. I can say the same thing about 251. If Muslims understood that Allah is saying that the earth becomes corrupt. You know, when Hannah Arendt wrote in her famous report about uh, the abduction of Eichmann, this is when Israel went, uh, abducted Eichmann from Argentina to stand trial for um, his crimes in the Holocaust, right? And Hannah Arendt writes a very famous report about whether it was the right thing to abduct Eichmann from Argentina and to um, hold him responsible in, or, or to put him put him on trial on, in Israel. The reason this is an issue is that he, um, um, uh, Eichmann didn't commit his crimes in Israel. He committed his crimes in Germany and other European countries. And why did Israel have jurisdiction to try Eichmann? Uh, well, because of Israel took, her, took itself as the representative of the Jewish people. And Eichmann has committed crimes against the Jewish people. And so Israel was holding him accountable for his crimes against the Jewish people. And so the most famous part about Hannah Arendt's report the most famous thing about her entire report was her, her statement about the banality of evil. And, you know, this became famous, it's been cited in works of philosophy and ethics more times than you can 
ever imagine that it is banality of evil meaning that evil actually doesn't prevail uh, because of any major acts. It just prevails when decent people do nothing. That's the banality of evil. That it is just remarkable that how it, there are numerous incremental acts where people who were decent could have done something, but they didn't. And because they didn't, the cumulative effect was disastrous. Well, long before Hannah Arendt made this comment, it's, my point is clear. The Quran teaches you that. When it tells you that if, it, if it's not for the fact that Allah uses people to stand up for oppression, if it be, in other words, in our modern day language, if people didn't stand up for oppression, corruption would become widespread. So this narrative continues with sort of a, after talking about all these specific laws, then dealing with the issue of warfare, but tying the issue of warfare, which the Quran invariably does, by the way, very unlike the Bible, that every time the Quran talks about warfare, it ties it to the issue of morality. There isn't a single Muslim scholar who has written about that, by the way. I mean, it's a, a remarkable failure in understanding the Quran that we haven't done that. You know, there's so many books, uh, Muslim scholars, I don't know, there's just obsession with the Western way of doing things. And, you know, they write their books about uh, the, uh, how Islam deals with, with war, and then they say, well, you know, and they talk about whether it's, uh, in, in the Islam has a concept of Jews and Belem and, uh, you know, just war. And, of course, you know, Orientalists write, uh, oh, you know, just war is only a Christian doctrine thing and Muslims don't understand just war. And, and it's just such, oh my God. The Quran never talks about warfare without tying it to the issue of morality and ethics. And this is no minor point, if only you knew. I mean, if, if you're if scholars of, of, of just war, we, but, anyway, okay. So then, reminding the Prophet, that, remember, again, it's like saying, there's nothing new under the sun. That God has sent prophets repeatedly with the same essential and basic message time and time again, carrying out the same dynamics that you, Muhammad, you are going through right now. 
And sort of a, a side issue that um, there among the um, although in Medina the there weren't any Christian tribes around Medina but one of the things that people were aware of about uh, Christians of Afar, meaning the Byzantine Empire, was that the Byzantine Empire had a, a, an iron will in imposing an Orthodox Christian creed. And in persecuting or going after every creed that was not consistent with the official doctrine of the Byzantine Empire. So the, the Coptic Church in Egypt was persecuted uh, because of these technical differentiated um, um, uh, this, you know, for what seemed like minor point of catechism or of a theological um, belief, and that there were considerable amount of bloodshed in Christian history between various interpretations of Christianity. And one of the the I mean one of the traditions, and interestingly, it is not reported in the context of this area two fifty three, um, but it is just mentioned that it, the Prophet is asked uh, about um, the which of the Christianities is intended when um, when Allah is talking or when God refers to the Christians in, in the Quran and and a, a sort of um, um, I forgot how it's phrased, but a question, it was sort of like, um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I forget, anyway, so, let, let me finish this up. Anyway, so, and what is interesting, the, 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 um, um, basically, the Prophet ﷺ, according to that tradition, say, it says that it, it, all those the, that is all those who receive the message of Isa ibn Maryam that th these are all the, the Christians. Uh, that tradition is not, you know, it is it has questions about its authenticity. But if you look at two fifty three, that 
it is in reference to the the fact that the considerable infighting within the Christian tradition, but in this, I read this as an as a indirect warning. Later on, the Quran issues the warning much more explicitly, but sort of an indirect flag, red flag about infighting among people who receive a message from a prophet that it is these that it, when people fight over the details of interpretation and reach the point that they are they, they actually wage war against them, that it's a corruption and that um, and it, because what the Quran says about the infighting between among in the Christian tradition plays a material role in the theology of plurality of religious truth within Sharia later on. The acceptance of the mazahab of the equal legitimacy of each other rather than what you would have expected to happen that each sect would although of course you know as 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 open-minded as the madhahib were uh, they were not able to avoid all theological infighting as we know from the history of the sunnah and shia and the ismailis and the khawarij and others i mean uh okay but this then is the Quran brings you back with a, an, another reminder of the necessity of sacrifices, the necessity of that truth, truth, and the whole point of the whole narrative that the Quran is talking about: resisting oppression, um, fighting. It, it is not possible. Unless, unless you spend of what God has given you. So, ya yu al-ladhina amanun fiqhu mimma radaknakum min qabli an yaati yawmun la bay'un fihi wa la khidlatun wa la shafa'a wal kafirunahum zalimun that again underscoring unless people are willing to make serious sacrifices in terms of their the relationship to material things causes cannot be served and cannot be upheld at this point we get one of the most remarkable ayat in the Quran so after a long journey was law or responding to legal issues and talking about war and sacrifice, etc., etc. Then you come to Allahu la ilaha illahu al hayyul qayyum, la ta'khuzhu sinatu wa naqi. This, as we will see, inshallah, is classic Quranic style 
that it it talks about these you know what would appear to be um, issues technical issues of law issues of social great social importance issues that of the the fate of history if you if you will and you know a very intense involvement often in um, the details you know the type of 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 details that would completely uh enrapture a jurist and a philosopher or a jurist or a philosopher you know okay well let's think in in, in terms of you know uh what we do about divorce what we do about um um or widows, what we do about marriages, what we do about uh, this and that issue. Okay, so what we do about war, what is the point of war, what is the point of big causes of justice and so on. And then invariably the Quran then draws you back into first principles by like after in the as if you in the midst of your intellectual journey where you are wrestling with these big you know technical issues uh, issues that make you feel like you know I'm, I'm struggling with very important uh, issues of policy and issues of uh, right and wrong then it grabs you and reminds you that it is all about God. It is not about you. It is not about your issues. It is not about sects. It is not about even the followers of this religion or that religion. It is, it is not about even what the Israelites did or what the Christians did or even about what the Kafar did or what the Muslims did. It, but it is about your relationship with God. So, in the midst of that, then you get what is famously known as Ayat al-Kursi. And the centrality of God to everything. This goes back to what we were saying last halakha. Your relationship to God is a priori to law, to history, to philosophy, to economics, to social policy. It is a priori to your marriage, to your parenthood, to, to anything that you can imagine. Time and time again, Allah tells you the most important relationship in your life is your relationship to Allah. Not your job, not your family, not your relationships, not your tradition, not your customs, not your profession, not whatever it is that you imagine yourself to be enthralled by. But 
is the center of everything and it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by the way Ayat al-Kursi is the dhikr for Surah al-Baqarah But it is much more than the dhikr for Surah Al-Baqarah because it is also those, the, the, it is the dhikr so many turaq al-artiqa, so many of the, of the uh, various tariqas for artiqa, for elevation. Um, you rely on Ayat Kursi. So in, it, it is not at all unusual it depends of course on the tariqa but the, they will tell you that you know to to to, to begin your path of rataqa you repeat at the kursi a few hundred times a day um and it 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 is a power and an insight and a light um You know, first you understand it intellectually, but then you realize that there is no way of understanding it intellectually. There's only a way of perceiving it spiritually. And that all your, all your, all your uh, delusions about having understood it intellectually were, uh, were in vain, were just silly. Okay, then with that critical intervention in the narrative, it comes, and, and, I, and there's no accidents in, in any of the Quran. I mean, there's it's just, it's, the stage is set to make another intervention that is critical for the entire Muslim Ummah to fully understand. لا إكراه في الدين قد تبين الرشد من الغيب فمن يغفر بالطاغوت ويؤمن بالله فقد استمسك بالعروة الوسقى لن فصام لها الله ولي الذين آمنوا يخرجهم من الظلمات إلى النور والذين كفروا أولياءهم الطاغوت يخرجونهم من النور إلى الظلمات أولئك, أولئك أصحاب النار هم فيها خالدون okay. So this is now right after Surah 255, 256 and 257 So first you have many narratives about an, of, of an occasions for revelations were 256 meaning that when the Quran comes and says there is no compulsion in religion because truth, the path of truth is clear and the path of wrong and evil is clear. There are 
um, okay, so I'll go some of the through some of the most famous narratives. There is a narrative that says that a woman, there was a Imra'atul Mukla. Mukla means a woman that didn't bear children. So she swore um, that if God would give her a child, that she will raise this child as a Jew. This is because. Arabs in Medina looked at themselves, as I explained before, as illiterate people and looked at Jews as illiterate people and so looked up to the Jewish tribes. And then, so she had a child and uh, she raised the child, she raised the child as a Jew, but when the battle of Khandaq took place and um, sorry when Bani Nadir were kicked out of Medina exiled from Medina for violating their treaty with the Prophet with, the, with Muslims she didn't want to to she wanted to force her child to convert to Islam and so this woman went to the prophet and said, you know, I had sworn to raise him as a Jew if, uh, if, uh, if God would give me a child. And now, you know, he's going to leave with Bani Nadir. Um, so, but can I force him to be a Muslim? Um, there's a different but closely related version of this narrative that it wasn't just one woman, but that a number of the natives of Medina had relatives in Bani Nadir who mostly I mean, kids, children in Bani Nadir or, or sons and daughters in Bani Nadir who had converted to Judaism. So, when Ben and Nadir was going to leave Medina, they saw that their children are going to leave with Ben and Nadir. And so they wanted, they went to the Prophet and asked permission to force their sons and daughters to convert to Islam so they don't leave with Ben and Nadir. With, with ben and Nadir. Um, another um, version says, that there was um, a man a man from the tribe of Salim ibn Auf um, anyway I, I don't I can't remember I think his name was Al-Husseini I don't remember anyway so this man had two children and these two children converted to Christianity but he had converted to Islam and they were very young they were teenagers and 
he went to the Prophet ﷺ asking for permission to force his children to become Muslim. Uh, there's another version that the, some some of the narratives say it's the same al Husseini. Others say no, it was a different man. But anyway, the gist of the narrative is that this is a man who was Muslim, had converted to Islam, but there were merchants that came from Damascus to Medina. And uh, these merchants uh, preached their Christian faith to the children of this man. And that uh, his children converted to Christianity. And when they converted to Christianity, they told their father, we are going to go we are going to leave Medina with the these merchants and we're going to go live in Damascus with our Christian brothers. And the man was outraged and he went to the prophet saying, can I force him to stay in Medina and not leave um, with the merchants? And so the common thing to all these narratives is that the Quranic revelation, there is no compulsion in religion, came basically with the answer, no. That, you know, whether it is the Imra al-Muqlah, the woman who uh, uh, raised their child as a Jew, or whether it was the natives of Medina who had uh, Jewish children uh, who were leaving with Ben al-Nadir, or whether it was... Uh, uh, that man from the tribe of Salim ibn Awf, um, uh, who had two kids who converted to Christianity and he wanted them to become Muslim, or whether it was the man who had the kids who converted to Christianity because of the Christian merchants and he wanted to prevent them from leaving with um, the prostrate, the evangelical group that had come to Medina, that basically the response to all these situations was, no, you can't. And it is probably that all of these versions have, to one extent or another, some truth to them. Because it is clear that when Ben and Nadir were exiled from Medina, uh, for violating their treaty, that this traumatized a number of native Medinians who had either friends or relatives with Banu Nadir. And from the just the numerous reports that we have, it is clear that some there were some converts to Judaism, and that the family members who had converted to Islam especially with the, the young converts, uh, wanted to, to prevent them from leaving. Uh, also, the narratives, the narrative about a Christian um, group of merchants coming from Damascus, it's so specific and so particular that it, it would be very unusual if it was an invention. And especially that this basic version is transmitted in so many different um, 
narrations with some differences. You know, the uh, differences about who precise who precisely these were, um, where they converted, or you know how. But the the gist of the of the of, of the incident is always the same: is that these are people with a Muslim parent and Christian children, and the attempt of that parent to prevent the, his children from separating them. Or it, sometimes it's a man who's trying, who went to the prophet. Sometimes it's a woman who went to the prophet. But it's, it's in essence the same. So now we often pass over this. And again, because we don't write our history. And because we are so impacted by Orientalism and Islamophobia that we are largely clueless as a people. But I will tell you that you are talking about the 9th century. In the 9th century, for there to be any situation where you are telling parents you can't force your children to convert to your system of belief, whether religion or otherwise, it is absolutely radical. It is unprecedented. And I've spent an enormous amount of time researching this in all the languages I know. It is absolutely unprecedented. Unheard of. Absolutely radical. A king owned his people, a husband owned his wife, a parent owned his children. These were the ethics of the ninth century. A husband got to define everything about his wife. What she ate, what she wore, what she believed in, what she owned, what she did. A parent got to define everything about their child. A king got to define everything about his people. These were the ethics and mores of the ninth century. So the fact that Islam came and said, no, a husband doesn't have these rights. No, a parent doesn't have these rights. No, a king doesn't have these rights. It's absolutely radical. Now, that is why when people come today and pretend like a king has the right to do whatever he wants with his people. They, they, it is an absolute betrayal of Islam because they completely empty Islam of the very raison d'etre of its existence, of why it came. So we often pass over this point and Obscenely, I've attended a lecture where Patricia Crone, a very famous Orientalist who now passed away, was gave a lecture at UCLA where she said that absolutely did not mean that she could she spent a whole hour arguing that all these narratives about a, 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 the prophet wouldn't not allowing uh, parents to 
force their Jewish converts, ch their children who converted to Judaism, or parents who converted to Christianity. That all of these are just inventions and fabrications. And that the Quran could not possibly have had any conception of freedom of religion. And that when the Quran says there is no compulsion in religion, it absolutely does not mean any freedom of religion. And her whole argument rested on the fact that in the ninth century, that concept of freedom of religion didn't exist anywhere. Of course, she doesn't answer, and I asked her that question, well, so you're saying these traditions are invented, fabricated, and she said, absolutely, yes. And I said, okay, well, why would anyone fabricate them if the concept of freedom of religion didn't exist? You fabricated them for a reason. Were these like radical, crazy people who wanted freedom of religion? But by your historical argument, that didn't exist. That consciousness wouldn't have existed. And she just, you know, hummed and heft and there was no response, obviously. I mean, it just she, she had no coherent thing to say. But, but uh, the reason I'm pointing this is that because, again, you know, all these rich people, like, you know, someone was telling me uh, in Orange County, you know, an Egyptian family that yet built another mosque and spent millions of dollars on a new mosque and hiring a new imam. And it's like, do you know what something like the Usuli Institute could do with these millions that were just thrown on yet another mosque where they, the family controls the board of directors and controls the imam and they get to play Muslim scholars? Do you know the type of impact you can make on the world thinking, on, on the world, if the Muslim of, of the Usuli Institute had these millions? We can, you can you can provide fellowships for instead of these you know Muslim young Muslim students who finish their doctorates and they immediately they have to play the game of kissing up to Orientalists and corrupting their own tradition and corrupting their own consciousness and you come and you give and ex you extend the hand to, like a hand to drowning people and say come to me. I'll give you a safe space to do serious scholarship, to do real thought, and to actually start engaging the world from a point of strength. Because it takes it takes decades to develop the intellect that can gaze back and can have the strength to read Patricia Crone, for instance and say, I know all the languages you know, Patricia, and I can read all the sources you've read, Patricia, and I can rebut you point by point. That takes decades to create. But once that intellect dies, we have to wait around, I don't know how long, until another one comes. Because normally, when there is an intellect that can do that, that intellect, is so under siege by the, the, the dynamics of power that surround them that they are immediately 
immediately given every reason to shed off their Islamicness, to come up with a reason for why when they're invited to parties they shouldn't look awkward and stupid and backwards so they can they you know so they can drink alcohol you know so but you can't just drink alcohol unless you deconstruct the entire Quranic tradition and the entire Islamic tradition so you start going down that path or you know to speak of the of the how you know Muslims in fact never had a creative bone or an original bone in, in their life either that or you have to accept going to dumb Islamic circles where you know everything is stupid and everything is unoriginal and everything is unsophisticated and it's just a bunch of gibberish and rhetoric and dogma and so it's like okay do I want to be a stupid human being or do I want to be a dishonest human being so you convince yourself that being you're not really being dishonest you're just being intelligent and you're just being uh, sophisticated and p proof is that you're at Princeton or you're at Harvard or you're at Columbia or you're at Stanford or you're at Chicago or you're at whatever and look you know if I wasn't so sophisticated would, 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 would these places be the places I work Everyone calls me genius. Everyone calls me brilliant. Who cares if a bunch of, you know, ignorant Muslims don't admire what I have to say? But to ask someone to say, oh, no, you should be a maverick. You know, just do, just be Khalid Abul Fadl. Do you know how hard it is to be who I am? I mean, honestly, I never talk about this. I never talk about this. But it is extremely unfair because you're, 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 you're dumped on by Muslims and you're dumped on by non-Muslims and you pretty much live as a pariah. It is fundamentally unfair. And so what can I say? It just, it, it drives me, I will go to my grave my, my, you know, my vindication is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But you can't ask people to invest themselves, read thousands of books, learn numerous languages, you know, sit there and, you know, be unfair, do what it takes to live up to the standard of knowledge that is demanded and required of any Muslim scholar in this day and age and then to say well after all of that just you know make it on your own fight you know just it's your battle it's it's none of our it's it's, it's none it's not our concern it's it just you know alhamdulillah alhamdulillah I, I Allah aided me and helped me but it's, when I think of how difficult it was and how difficult it is because it continues to be difficult every day it, it is just what I, 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 I find myself unable to even expect that from from you know I feel sorry for every young intelligent hard-working Muslim uh, that I meet that says, oh, I want to, uh, you know, I, 
I want to follow the same path. That I look at them and I just feel, you know, you have no idea what you're saying. Uh, you know, you're 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 gonna have marital problems. You're gonna have your kids are going to. Uh, you're going to have problems as a parent. You're you're going to have problems in your career. You're going to be. Uh, 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 you're going to have problems with jealousy. You're going to have problems with your fellow Muslims. You're going to have problems with your uh, non-Muslim colleagues. You're going. You know. You, you will not have a moment of peace in your life. So now notice, but it doesn't stop there because this is one of the most incredible Quranic revelations after telling you about all this law all this remark you know and then it comes and, and, and reminds you that it's all about God and then it comes reminds you about another thing a foundational ethical principle there is no compulsion in religion. What is this path you're on? The path you're on, manistamsaka bil urwatil wuthqa, is nothing short of. Urwal wuthqa is like saying your lifeline. We often, let's see, like Muhammad Asad 256 translates it as. Hamas says distinct has now become the right way from the way of error, hence who rejects the powers of evil and believes in God has indeed taken hold of support most unfailing. So he says support most unfailing. That's closer to a lifeline that a lot of people who translate it translate it as like a, a knot of sorts. But an Orwar Wuthqa basically means that who holds firm to this lifeline, who holds firm to this backbone of truth. So, they've hold on, it's like saying who holds on to this lifeline, holds on to the firm truth, to the absolute truth. What is this lifeline? It is nothing short of taking you from darkness to light. Because without it, whatever light might exist in your life, you will always drift from light to darkness. Meaning what? Now, pause here and think. Is Allah saying to you, that the laws that I gave you is the lifeline are the rules of talaq three months waiting period four months waiting period the, a, a year of support the, is that the, the lifeline? absolutely not the lifeline is learning how to morally and ethically respond to actual life-like problems from an ethical perspective. So, I have a problem. What is the ethical thing to do? What is the moral thing to do? 
ethical thing that affirms God's justice and God's truth. So the ethical thing to do, you know, what, what cannot can never be. Oh, let's you know, let, let's do more gambling. Let's drink more alcohol. That's not obviously what we're talking about. And understand that in the same way that I told you Muslims that you are intended to be the best people. Why? Because I intend for you to be an ummah wasat, to be in terms of relational things, that you are always on the ummah wasat literally in terms of actual relations and relations shift and change and develop and evolve, right? So, in relation to every changing, evolving situation, you are always the balanced people. Meaning, you are not the people who gravitate towards one way or the other. So you're not the people who are the sexist people. You're not the classist people. You're not the racist people. You're not any of the highest people. And why? So that you bear witness. In the same way that Allah told you this, then Allah comes and tells you, well, and this path is about always, always being the people that would lead others from darkness to light. Now, ask yourself, we are, our consciousness is, as human beings, our neurology, our, our, the way that our brains work, it are always, as I said many times, contextual and subjective. Meaning what? Meaning that the things that gross us out are always contextually defined. When I was a young kid, and I was in the village in Egypt, among the things that kids do, is that they would collect the dunk of cattle. They would walk around, they would take the dunk of cattle, they would dry it out, and because it was great, great uh, burning material, like firewood. So, you know, and it didn't gross them out at all. It was something very normal. They collect the dunk of cattle, they dry it, they pat it, they dry it, they use it for fire. Try to get someone from the city and say, go around collecting the dunk of cattle and prepare it for firewood, right? Yours, your, the way that you, you're, 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 you're wired, your brain is wired, is contextual. So what strikes you as darkness and strikes you as light often is defined by the way that your brain is wired. Some of this 
needs philosophical rigor. In other words, you might be grossed out by certain things, but if I educate you as to the facts, you might realize that what grosses you out is a result of misperception. But, the, but being a people who take people from darkness to light, this is a really critical point. It doesn't mean and especially that Allah introduced this by saying there is no compulsion, it doesn't mean that you can, it, you can force the perception of people. It doesn't mean that you can obtain the results by shame by shaming or coercion or compulsion but it does mean that you would be in a position to understand but and educate but you can't educate unless you understand and educating includes being in a position, if the world reacts by something and say, oh, that's darkness, that, that shocks my conscience. Well, if, it's, if the world is wrong, then you have to be in a position as a Muslim to educate the world as to why this is not darkness. But if your explanation appear, appears forced, or apologetic, or unpersuasive. Allah teaches you there's no coercion, meaning you can't just blame the world and say, well, it's the world's fault. This, this is a very high standard for Muslims to have to meet. This is why you completely understand what Sheikh Ghazali, Allah would say, it absolutely makes no sense that Muslims are at the tail end of the world's curve as pioneers of knowledge. Because what Allah expects from us is that exactly what the Islamic civilization achieved earlier. It's, it's not what the, the Emiratis want of Muslims today, is to basically let, let the world, you know, Las Vegas lead the world in terms of what's right and wrong. And the financial markets lead the world in terms of what's right and wrong. And, you know, the, the, the Lady Gaga and Mariah Carey and uh, Nicki Minaj define what's right and wrong and we just invite them and, you know, hop around and dance and sing and so on. But it is truly being we as Muslims should have the Oxford and the Cambridge and the Harvard and the Princeton and we should be the ones who have the institutions you know compare between the institutions of knowledge at Azhar compare that to the Vatican the Vatican has serious educational institutions people has a serious library, has serious scholars. Azhar, by comparison, is a joke 
is a joke. A degree from Azhar, I'll be the first to tell you, a degree from Azhar is a joke. All these Muslims that can convert to Islam or that go to Egypt and come back and uh, I have a degree from Azhar and now they, they are the sheikhs in the U.S., I can tell you, it's an absolute joke. There are no exams. There are no real standards. There are no real anything. You pretty much, as long as you pay, you get your degree. So there. Any of you that wants a degree from Azhar, I'll get you a degree from Azhar. Just come to me. I'll tell you what to do, who to go to. You'll get a, your degree from Azhar. It's just really sad. It's abysmal. And, you know, what, what is needed is that this Egyptian, many, Egyptian family that spent millions of dollars in a new mosque in Orange County would have the sense, the brains, to reorient their millions. But, of course, it would require that they not be, you know, not appoint themselves as great Muslim scholars serving on the board of directors. But that's what rich families always love. They want to be the shiuch. They want to be the scholars. They want to be the authorities. And they think because they have the money, they're entitled. And so, you know, the whole dynamic, of, oh, you give to the way and the cause of God, is completely absent. What time is it? Okay, I think, where are, where are we? Oh, this is a good point to stop. 2.57. Okay, so this is a good point to stop at 2.57. Okay. I feel um, overwhelmed and, and, and humbled and completely, like, this was the most amazing, I mean, every session is amazing, but this was really out of this world, especially the last part. But let me start with, there was a comment that from last session that I didn't get to say if people didn't watch it, um, if they didn't watch the Holocaust from last time. You know, I think a, a lot of these comments, I mean, I think we get so much value from hearing, especially the personal stories. And, um, you know, I can say it as my testimony that when we started Project Illumin, or started thinking about the possibility of Project Illumin last summer, which feels like 10 years ago, but was really even just a little over a year ago. You know, we really didn't know, like, what this potentially could be or if this would even be anything. Um, all I knew is, like, every time the, the sheikh would, you know, tell me a little something, like, did you know the Quran said this? Did you know this verse? Did you know that, you know, God, whatever, um, these like little gold nuggets he'd drop on me, you know, in the hallway of our house or if I'm sitting at my desk working and he'd like peek his head in and tell me, did you know this? And I would be like out of my mind, like, what, are you kidding? Oh my God, no, I had no idea. You have to tell people, how could you not tell people this? Because he would be like, he just assumed that all of this stuff that he's been teaching us, that everybody knows all of this, right? And I, maybe people have heard this story before. So this led to our first Project Illumin you know, pilot episode with Surah Hadid and all of that. And he then sort of admitted that a lot of the stuff that he talks about is stuff that he has just been keeping, you know, to himself and that is sort of his his own musings, his own thought. Um, and, you know, he's obviously very, um, or he, he just expressed how he was very um, 
reticent to share like what was his as opposed to you know what is the rest of the tradition and so over time you know now we've been doing this for a while and um, I think as people have seen what we're learning and people react to it um, you know things have evolved I mean I know in my own personal situation like when the more I learn the more I feel confident the more I feel empowered the more I feel indignant that Muslims don't know this the more I feel like how can it be like this? You know, it's like my conviction grows as to the power of this message. And I think that, you know, maybe in some ways too, then Sheikh feels more comfortable, like revealing, okay, well, this is the first time that anyone has ever looked at it this way. So today, for example, when you said, no one has ever really talked about like Surah Baqarah pointing out a law and then always tying it back to a moral point. Um, and that's a big deal, you know, for him to say, like, you know, and I noticed the way he said it was not like outright, this is original to me. Um, I know that that is the case, but he was saying, you know, why didn't other Muslims not look at it this way? And, you know, I think we all have a right to ask that question. But one of the point, this is sort of a long and roundabout way of saying that he said something very, very important at the end of the last halakha, which is when he came out and said that uh, an Islamic scholar or someone who claims to be a scholar of Islam, especially of the Quran, has to be someone who's pious that it is just simply, you know, a non sequitur, it's a non-starter non if you are approaching the Quran intellectually but at, without the requisite piety. And I didn't want that to be lost because that was such an important thing. It's like you had given us so much and it was like it was too much to process all at once. It's kind of the feeling I have right now about what we covered today. But I, I just wanted to make sure that, that that was not lost because that is such a critical point. And I think when we are in a crisis of not appreciating our scholars, you know, like scholars now are sheikh, even that word has become somewhat even associated with sexual abuse. So, you know, we've, in, in our community, it's like the scholar is on the same level as the medical doctor, actually less so because scholar, you know, medical doctors have more money. So they actually have more influence and more, you know, um, intellectual weight, unfortunately. But, um, but I think to give us that tool to say, you know, because I think it's important, people are always wondering, how do I evaluate a good scholar from not? And that's one really important tool, is to understand, okay, how pious is this person? And it's, and it's hard, because obviously people perform piety, and so it's a little bit difficult, but when you get to know someone, and I think that you understand who they are as a person, that definitely gives you a much stronger window into what kind of a scholar is this person, how much can I trust them about their knowledge of the Quran and how much they're telling me about my religion. So that was point number one. Um, today's, I thought, halakha, just again, you know, like I now I, I'm trying to always keep notes about the things that really jump out at me and that are, everything is special, but the things that are especially um, newer or, or, you know, insightful that, you know, from, from my perspective. So, um, I think, first of all, the discussion on the degree, men having a degree over women, and walking us through like how it really depends on the interpreter and the interpretation, and how you can avoid having an immoral interpretation. Like, if you are committed to a moral, an amoral interpretation, that you cannot, it cannot be about um, saying that someone is inherently um, defective in a situation like whether uh, you know a, a man is better than a woman or a particular race the Kuwaiti is better or superior to the Egyptian in your example um, and I think that walking through that 
exercise was so powerful because it's really like step-by-step -step deconstructing of this idea, which I think is necessary because people are so quick to dismiss and judge. It's like, oh, you're just trying to be a feminist or whatever, you know, by saying this. No, let's walk through the logic of this. And it just, that was extremely powerful. Um, then the idea of, of leaving a will um, and being, um, you know, told like you, you can't just die and leave it to your to the people who come after you. You actually have to be morally responsible and worry about the dignity of your widow and or your family. Um, the moral lesson of even the treatment of of a of a woman of a widow. You know, you can't just be ejected from your home. Um, you have to have maintenance and even the treatment of a divorced woman. Um, it's just such a beautiful ethic. Um, then the whole discussion from verses 243 through I think 251 about um, how you're the living dead when you live under oppression and how you can come to life by actually fighting oppression and how that becomes I mean such a powerful message about the banality of evil right that we should live not as animals just living and then consuming and dying but actually living to fight for justice and having a cause. I mean, it just, um, it's so powerful. Um, and, um, okay, so and I mentioned the tying the warfare to the issue of morality in every case. I think the Bible studies um, is so powerful to understand like the difference between the Quranic versus the biblical version of things. It's, I, I always love it every time we go through Bible study. Um, and then, you know, to reach, like, as you were saying, you know, all of these different situations where the Quran is addressing, okay, here's the problem, here's the solution, here's the problem, here's the solution, let's talk about the moral lesson, let's, you know, like this is like the academics philosopher's dream, you know, let's get into the details and let's discuss this policy and that policy and whatever, and then for God to pull you back and say, but wait, the most important thing you know, is your relationship with God and that God is central to everything and, and Ayatul Kursi. I, you know, honestly, like, I have to admit, this is maybe embarrassing, um, but, you know, I've always heard Ayatul Kursi, Ayatul Kursi, Ayatul Kursi. And as a non-Muslim, I mean, it was special, but as a non-Arabic speaker, like, it was, for me, okay, I, I didn't understand it, so I heard it, but it didn't necessarily mean anything to me. Um, and I could read it, but I mean, but walking through what we've done with Surah Baqarah and arriving at it, and then now understanding it in its context, <coughs> now I will never forget Ayatul Kursi. Like now it's really something so powerful and I get it. And it's like, again, back to the idea of needing context. You know, your consciousness has to be tied to your, you know, moment, your context. I mean, your language having that special meaning. And now that you've taken us through that, that's something that is so powerful um, and then the idea of you know no compulsion in religion and putting it into perspective because we hear no compulsion in religion every single day right and it's becomes something like a mantra no compulsion in religion whether it's applied or not is something else but you know I mean no I mean we obviously Wahhabis and people are telling us all the time what we're supposed to believe as Muslims right so there is there is a, a you know people are ignoring the idea of no compulsion in religion, but to bring it back to like the the mentality of the ninth century and how you know kings owned their people, husbands owned their wives, parents owned their kids, that's such a powerful context to provide for us to understand like how radical this idea was in its time, and I think that that's just always incredible. And 
finally, what you just dropped on us like what five minutes ago, um, <laughs> which is the idea of what this means for us in terms of um, educating others. Um, and you have to understand to educate. There can't be coercion. You know, I mean, you can't blame mothers for not understanding. The onus is on us, really, to understand our time, our tradition, how to communicate it, how to communicate it well, how to be at the forefront of, of everything. I mean, for us in terms of education, you know, how, how do we speak in a way that is compelling and understandable? Um, and it's really then it puts the onus on us to be good. And, and to be smart and to be skilled um, and not to just blame others because they don't get what we're doing. Um, yeah, and I guess the last thing that I just want to say is, um, you know, it is always really, I think, important to get an, a, an insight into how difficult it is to be in Sheikh's shoes. You know, so, so I'm his wife, I get to testify, I get to see it, I get to live it. You know, I've been on this journey for so long. And I, I can hear the detractors, you know, when you're saying, do you know how difficult it is to be palatable fuddle? And, you know, I can hear like jealous voices um, and detractors saying, oh my God, here we go. He's going to whine and whatever. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm going to put this also, maybe this, I didn't tell you this, but um, one, of our, one of our friends was trying to, you know, um, get a, a, talk about the Sully Institute and encourage someone to donate. And they're, um, response was, well, I'm not paying for his salary, you know, and that was it, like, I don't want to donate because I'm not paying for his salary, and so it's, um, it uh, really bothered me because the assumption is, like, why should I give money to pay for a scholar? Because the scholar should invest all of his money to support, you know, like, basically, we have a 100,000 book library, all of this came out of our savings, so it's an entitlement. He should be spending all of his money buying all the books of the Islamic tradition. He should be working full-time as a law professor, teaching a full load. And he should be using all of his spare time and killing himself to teach the halakha and give us this knowledge. And he should be, you know, uh, uh, like open to us and available to us anytime we have a question about anything regarding our faith. And how dare he not answer my email? And how dare he not want to meet with me if I, you know, demand a meeting, and how dare he not make it clear for me to understand, you know, this point, and how dare he blah, 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 and I am not going to support him by, you know, paying his salary. This is, his reward is with God, and I don't have to, I just need to sit there and put my hand out and get it for free, and that's how it should be. I mean, that's really the, 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 you know, implicit um, assumption when you say something like that. But I think the flip side of it that people don't recognize is, you know, a, a scholar, I mean, I don't know how many scholars are like this, but when you dedicate your entire life and your savings and your time and your health and everything like that, um, not because you want to be recognized as the best scholar in the world or anything, like you're not doing it because of, you know, wanting to be famous, um, you know, it, this is like a sign of your dedication to serving some, a greater cause, you know, and, and yeah, it's really hard. Um, and it's also extremely beautiful and meaningful. And, um, you know, we're so blessed and we're so lucky to be receiving this. 
Um, and you know, it's it's hard to say in front of people that this is hard because then it makes you feel like you're whining. But no, I need to testify and say that this is not what anyone would do. I mean, this is not an easy path. It's not a path that anyone would choose except someone who's exceptional and who really cares more about being a rock star in the heavens um, and not a, you know a nobody here. And that's I think also what makes this so precious because um, it's just you don't you just don't find it anywhere else um so i just have to say that and i have to say you know thank thank you so much um you know like i feel so grateful to be you know in this time and in this space um receiving this knowledge um it's clearly going to be a burden because obviously we know that when you get this kind of knowledge, it's you, now your responsibility to pass it on or do whatever you can to make sure other people get it. But I would not trade my place, you know, with anyone. I, I would not want to be, you know, just in the comfort of being the animal that consumes and, you know, lives and dies not having known this. And so I, I'm grateful for that challenge and, and for the gift. And thank you so much for, for being you and for allowing us to be here. So that is it. <laughs> Um, alhamdulillah. Thank you so much. Sorry, you feel like I'm... <laughs> Thank you everyone for being with us. And uh, inshallah, I pray that you guys have a wonderful rest of the weekend. And that we will see you um, on Wednesday, inshallah, to be continued. Thank you guys. Assalamu alaikum.